And let's, uh, let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that we can meet together as a church family in the middle of the week and for an opportunity to study a little deeper into the truth that you have revealed. We desire, though we don't desire it as much as we should, to be holy, to be as set apart and Christ-like as it's possible to be. And yet, though we utter those words, they perhaps do not mean what they ought to mean. We know that it's your desire to make us like the Lord Jesus, to conform us, mold us, shape us, break off things that shouldn't be there and, and put on things that ought to be there, to put off and to put on, to mortify and bring to life. And so we pray tonight as we think about holiness and, and progressive sanctification, uh, work within our hearts, we pray, and give to us those holy desires that are in keeping with our status as the children of God. Now bless us, we pray, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now uh, let's uh, begin on page two, and uh, as, we, as we're familiar enough, or should be familiar enough, uh, we're looking at the order salutis together, the, the uh, order of salvation, uh, the application of redemption. Uh, the question that we're asking is this, how is that which Christ has achieved for us on the cross, how is that made effective in the lives for whom he achieved it? We know that that is made effective by the work of the Holy Spirit along a discernible, uh, logical order. Uh, we're not saying that these various strands are necessarily discernible in a chronological fashion uh, in our lives. We're not, this isn't meant to make us all introspective and say, have I experienced this and that and the other? Uh, and did I experience them in the degree uh, to which I ought to have experienced them? And can I discern repentance? And then only when I've discerned it fully and completely, then can I discern faith and, and so on? That that can turn in and it can become a salvation by, by human effort of another kind, a, a salvation by, by a confirmation of something introspective within us. And we must always be looking to Jesus. Uh, and if at any point in the study of the Order Salutis you find yourself becoming all, all introspective, uh, that's the point at which to stop and, and, and look to Christ. All of these things come to fruition, all of these come uh, to their proper place as we consider them in union and communion uh, with the Lord Jesus. I'm kind of spinning my wheels because people are still coming in, uh, which is great. Uh, thank you for those of you uh, online and those of you uh, here uh, in the building who sent me an email this week, and four or five of you did. Uh, 
actually locating the origin of the phrase architectonic principle that we were talking about last week. And uh, Dr. Davis was one and uh, a friend of mine, and you'll know who you are in Alabama, uh, who sent me a, a reference, and that, that's really helpful, and, and thank you for that. Uh, I've uh, given here a list of books, uh, literature. Uh, sorry for the self-serving number 13, but, but uh, that's the only time I've ever referred to myself in any of these, and this is, I think this is lecture 56, so uh, put it in perspective. But, um, uh, but I do want to uh, uh, single out um, uh, Sinclair Ferguson's Grow in, in Grace, uh, which is a w wonderful and accessible volume on sanctification. Uh, if I were to pick just one, uh, that, would, that would be difficult. Uh, on the negative side of sanctification, uh, John Owen's mortification of sin, I'm, I'm going to say it, that it's something that every Christian really should read at some point in their lives. Just remember as you're reading it that John Owen was actually uh, delivering this material to boys that were 14, 15 years of age at Oxford University. You went to university early in the 17th century. Uh, and, these, and women did not attend university in the 17th century, so it was actually to, to pubescent boys that he was, uh, he was addressing this material on mortification. You might wonder what do 14, 15-year-old boys need to hear John Owen's answer as the vice-chancellor of Oxford University, uh, which he was at the time he delivered those, uh, that material, was, was sermons on the mortification of sin how times have changed. Um, a, a, a definitive volume, a classic volume, um, probably the number one for, for many folk uh, would be James Fraser, uh, a treatise on sanctification. You've probably never heard of it. Uh, it's it's uh, sad. It is in print, uh, but it hasn't received the, the kind of publicity uh, that it ought to have. It's still... 19th century, so the sentences are long and they have subordinate clauses and so on. Um, but it's, it's, and I don't agree with every single line of its exegesis of Romans 6 for sure, um, but it is a classic, classic, reformed, sound, sensible treatment of the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, and if you can't uh, access James Fraser, I think I'd probably go for Walter Marshall's The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. But let's. Uh, Let's dive in. Uh, what is sanctification? Let's look at the Shorter Catechism answer. Uh, question 35. Sanctification is the work. It's not an act. It's not uh, forensic. It's thinking here in terms of progressive sanctification, not definitive or positional sanctification that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. I want you to catch a few things about that answer. Uh, first of all, it contains a negative and a positive statement. Dying to sin and living to righteousness. Uh, and, and that's fundamental to understanding what sanctification is. It's, it's a negative and a positive thing. It's killing sin, but it's also... Uh, displaying the fruits of the Spirit. 
So there are negative things in sanctification, but there are also positive things in sanctification. The definition here is weighted on the side of what God enables us to do, but the the definition, the answer here is very much weighted on sanctification as a work of God, and that is true, but sanctification is also a work that you and I engage in. And, and perhaps, and, and, and here I get into trouble, I'll walk up to the line and not cross over it, but, but I think that the answer perhaps insufficiently gives weight to our responsibility here. Uh, it, it, it does mention our responsibility, enables, uh, and, and are enabled more and more. To, it's, it's us who die to sin and live unto righteousness, but it's, it's, it's very much a responsibility of Ours. It's not something that God simply does for us and we have nothing to do. Um, that there's, there's, we do, but we do only because God enables us. And we'll work that out in a moment. Calvin, classic treatment, Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3 uh, of uh, the Institutes. Um, Calvin said there were three parts to sanctification. Um, mortification, vivification, uh, which is an old word, but to vivify, to bring to life. So negative, positive. And then he went on to speak about meditation on the future life. Um, uh, Here we have no continuing city, but we look for one to come whose builder and maker is God. Set your mind on things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. That aspect of sanctification too, of meditating on the future life. But, but notice Calvin, uh, negative, positive, mortification, uh, vivification. Now let's work this out a little more detail. Uh, and we're looking at big picture rather than, than details here as to what sanctification is. Let's look at the negative for a minute. Sanctification, remember the architectonic principle here is union with Christ. So negatively, that, that works out in our union with the death of Christ. Think of Paul when Paul talks about sanctification in big picture language. He talks about dying with Christ and rising with Christ. Think especially of Colossians 3 or, or Romans chapter 6. And, and the, 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 the picture that Paul often has in mind is dying with Christ, in union with Christ, and rising with Christ. Negative, positive. Dying, coming to life. Mortification, vivification. So let's look at the negative. Our identity with Christ in his death. Uh, and it's an exhortation here to active uh, to active engagement. Let's look at Romans 6, uh, 11 through 14. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. You must reckon yourselves dead to sin. Why? Because we died in union with Christ. There is a sense in which when Christ died, we died in him. Uh, so you, you also must consider, you must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin 
Notice the emphasis on members. He's thinking of the body in particular. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Uh, Eyes and ears and hands and feet. Uh, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's building on something that Paul has already said uh, in verse 7 of Romans 6. For one who has died has been set free, and, and the word is justified. One who has, who has died has been set free from sin. We are, we are dead to the rule uh, of, of sin. Sin is no longer our master. We have, we have died now. We may still obey sin. But if we do, we're doing it for all the wrong reasons. We're doing it when we're not, we're not obligated to do it. When we were in Adam, sin ruled and reigned. And, and reigned. But, but that, that is no longer the case. And you must reckon that. You must remind yourselves that you are no longer under sin's authority. Uh, sin can influence the believer, but no longer dominate uh, then the other, the other significant text here is Colossians uh, 3, which we're about to come to on Sunday evenings. Uh, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For, and, and notice Paul is reversing it here, uh, he talks about resurrection first and, and then grounds it in the fact that you have died in Christ. So it's the, it's the opposite of Romans 6. Um, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Uh, fascinating, isn't it, that in the first century, as Paul now gives a list of things that you're to put to death, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, uh, se- several fascinating things about that list, and I'll let uh, Dr. Davis expand on it uh, in a few weeks' time when he comes to Colossians 3. Uh, the, the first thing that strikes me about that list is, first of all, Uh, sexual immorality is the first thing that he mentions you you know we are all too accustomed to that in 2014 even within even within the covenant community even within the church we are all too accustomed to that and we tend to think sometimes that the bible is a book written far far away in a galaxy far far away but but actually that could have been written yesterday that what is the prevailing sin in the church today and its pornography? Now, we may find that distasteful. We may not even want to think about that. And some of you perhaps find that terribly shocking. But that, that is the reality of what's facing the church today. Uh, and, uh, and here is Paul addressing it head on, as it were. He's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not bypassing this. This is a problem. This is an issue. And you are to put it to death. 
Um, you, are, you are to set your goal on destroying this in, uh, in your life. And the second thing that's fascinating about it is the, is, is the word idolatry. What, what are you doing when you yield to sin? Well, you're saying sin is your master, sin is your Lord. You're setting up an idol. This, these are your idols. These are the things ultimately that you serve and, and therefore worship. And, and that sin is idolatry. That the essence of sin, as, um, as some of the church fathers suggested, as Augustine suggested, that the essence of sin uh, is idolatry. Well, more, uh, um, more I think, in Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For if according to the flesh... Uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death... Now, that's the ESV translation. Uh, some of you are more familiar with the King James translation, which would be mortify, to put to death, to mortify. Uh, there's a similar text in Colossians 3 that Dr. Davis will come to. It's a different Greek word, uh, but the same idea of, of putting to death, of, of, of crucifying, of killing sin. Killing sin. Now, this is the text that John Owen used in his book. Uh, well, there were sermons, of course, but then became a book on the mortification of sin. He, he was expounding this particular text in Romans 8.13. Now, Romans 8.13, of course, comes after Romans 6, in, in which Paul has already explained that you are in a position to mortify sin because you've died with Christ and, ra- and been raised with Christ. The, the basis, the ground upon which you can mortify sin is your union with Christ, something that Paul has already dealt with in Romans 6. The need for you to deal with sin is Romans 7, the next chapter, because in Romans 7, in the second half of the chapter, Paul explains the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would not, that I find I do, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. We are saved, we're regenerate, we're indwelt by the Spirit, but we still sin, and we still sin sometimes in habitual ways. We're under the habit of a certain sin. And, and, and therefore, the, 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 the basis, the, the ground upon which we can deal with sin is our union with Christ. The need for dealing with sin is the fact that we're still struggling with sin. We're not in heaven, we're still here. We have been delivered from sin's Dominion, but we have not been delivered from sin's presence. And the fact of the matter is, we yield to sin when we don't need to. Now, what does Paul say here? He says, he says, put to death. Kill sin or it'll kill you. John Owen said. I have a... Um, a, a wall painting. It's a, it, it's a quotation from John Owen. One of my uh, one of my students, uh, one of my TAs, did it for me. Actually, it was his wife who did it for me. Um, and it, it's in my house. And uh, it, it's a it's a te- it's a statement. It's a quotation from John Owen's uh, mortification of sin, uh, an exhortation that you must be about. 
killing sin or a part of a sin every day. Kill a sin or a part of a sin every day. So what sin are you trying to kill today? What, what sin in your life are you trying to kill? I'm not saying that you might, this, might be a, this might be something that you'll be working on all of your lives. You know, some trees can be felled in a, an hour or two, and some trees might take you a long time to fell, to bring down. And then, unless you take it up by the roots, it's going to grow, up, grow again. Uh, if, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Notice the uh, conditional clause, if. What does an if statement mean? Well, it's followed by an, a, a, a then statement. A, a protasis and apodosis, if you want to, the grammar. But, but there's a conditional clause here. There's an if. But what, what if you don't then? What if not? If you live according to the flesh, you will die but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If, if you don't mortify sin, what's going to happen? This isn't rocket science. It's right there in the text. If you don't mortify sin, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Die in what sense? Not, not, Paul isn't saying that we're going to die in the sense we're all going to die. It's appointed unto man once to die. He's talking about spiritual death here. You may say that you're a Christian. You may think that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but if you're not involved in mortifying the deeds of the flesh, you will die. That's his warning. It, it's, it's, it's severe, isn't it? It's, it's harsh. It's threatening. It isn't nice. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Uh, I was at... Uh, uh, the Together for the Gospel uh, conference this year, and they put me on this panel. I'm not sure why I ended up on this panel, but I was on this panel, and uh, Matt Chandler was the chairman of the panel, and um, Kevin DeYoung was there, and I was there, and John Piper was there, and, and we were all kind of in awe of John Piper, and he was actually sitting to my left, so... So, uh, you know, you've, you're in a room with, uh, I don't know how many, six, 7,000 people. And, and uh, so Matt Chandler asked a question, and, uh, and the question really wasn't going anywhere. And so, so I said, you know, I just kind of jumped in and said, um, what, if, uh, what if a person is uh, hooked on um, internet pornography and he comes to you for help? And uh, you say to him, you say to him, um, let's go down to the river. Um, what's the river down at the bottom of Jove? Congaree. Uh, see you in a moment. The Congaree, let's go down to the Congaree River. Let's, let's throw your laptop into the river. And uh, the person says, um, I can't do that. I, I need it. It's, it's, uh, I need it for my work. And I, and, I said, and I said, well, you know, if you're not prepared to do that, I can't help you. Because what you need to do here is get rid of this at its source. How serious are you about getting rid of this sin? Because it's not, it's not 
playing with it, it's killing it. And I said, and I said uh, in this conference, I said, um, what happens uh, to a person? I mean, if somebody isn't prepared to mortify that sin, what's going to happen to them? And there was a kind of silence, and then John Piper loudly says, they're going to go to hell. And, and you could have heard a pin drop. It was like the oxygen being sucked out of the building. Because this was John Piper saying this. That if you're not prepared to engage actively in the mortification of sin, you're going to hell. That's what this text is saying here. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, and it's by the Spirit's help here, you put to death, you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. So sanctification is more than just realize your justification. Now, there are, there are folk today who are, who are suggesting that sanctification is all, what you need to do is realize that, you're, realize that you're in a right relationship with God. Realize your justification. Realize the fact that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Realize that, that, you're, that you're in union with Christ. That's all you need to do. And, and, and that's not all that you need to do. That's the ground. That's the basis. That's the starting point. That's the platform. Without, without that, uh, it, 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 this is, this is legalism without that. But, but there's more than that. There's activity here. There's responsibility here. Uh, notice, uh, notice the imperative, what I call the imperative indicative axis. Uh, sometimes called gospel grammar. The imperative is always based upon the indicative. We are, we are to engage in mortification because of what we are or who we are. We are those who are now in union and communion with Christ. We are those who have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. On the basis of that indicative, there comes now an imperative, something that we are commanded to do. Prior union with Christ grounds all of our activity. To quote uh, someone that you know, Sinclair Ferguson, the determining factor of my existence is no longer my past, it is Christ's past. That's a, that's a very profound statement. I may have a terrible past. If I think about it, it can, it can weigh me down. It can, it can thoroughly depress me. It can bring me into a state of inactivity. But the most important thing, the, the, the determining factor of my existence is not my past, it is Christ's past. Because all my past has been, has been, has been taken by Christ and nailed to that cross so that I see it no more. So that's the negative side. Let's, let's jump ahead a little to our identity with Christ in his resurrection, bottom of page 4. Uh, this is the positive now, the vivification side. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God, uh, Romans 6.10. Now what's the basic... What's the basic um, 
shape. Let's, uh, let's, let's jump across to chapter 5. What's the basic shape of um, sanctification? Uh, let, let me try and summarize it here. There's a negative and there's a positive. There's a killing sin and then there's a, there's a bringing to life. A bringing to life in union with Christ. Uh, the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, let, me, let me summarize here the basic shape of sanctification along these six lines of thought here. First, that the context of sanctification is justification. That's, that's crucial. We are called upon to do something here. To kill sin and, and bring the graces, the fruits of the Spirit to life. But if we're not justified, all of that is legalism. All of that is, is, is self-effort. All, the, all of that is, is something that, that we, we do and it becomes a, a kind of works righteousness. So the context of sanctification must be justification. An act, a sovereign act of God that declares us to be in our right standing with him on the basis of what Christ has done for us. Secondly, the essence of sanctification is transformation through conforming to Christ-likeness. The essence of sanctification is transformation into Christ-likeness. Think of uh, Paul in Romans 8, 28, 29, 30, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son. And whom he did predestinate them, he also called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified them, he also glorified. To be conformed to the image of his Son. What's What's the essence of sanctification? What is it essentially about? It's making us like Jesus. It's, it's, it's shaping us into Jesus-like beings. That's the essence of it. So, so in one sense, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how like Jesus am I? Or, or perhaps to put it in a different way, when those who've never seen Jesus... And never heard of him. The unchurched. Where are they likely to see Jesus? And hear Jesus? Well in you. And in me. That's the only Jesus they're ever likely to see or hear. And what is it that they're seeing? And hearing. That's a a burden isn't it? That's a responsibility. So the essence of sanctification is is Christ-likeness. The root of sanctification is co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Christ. That's what Paul is working out in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And it's what Paul is working out in Colossians chapter 3. So, So being crucified with Christ, being raised with Christ, that's the root of sanctification. The agent of sanctification is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who indwells us who enables us, who energizes us, who fills us, who baptizes us, who guides us, leads us, drives us. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, by the Spirit, uh, the experience of sanctification is conflict. It's uh, what Paul is saying in uh, Romans 7, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I find, I do. I, I, I take the second half of Romans 7 in the Augustinian, Old 
old-fashioned, old-perspective sense, if you like. Uh, there, there are m more modern interpretations of that. Uh, that this is Paul, this is Saul of Tarsus under conviction before before the scales fell from his eyes. There's that interpretation, but I, I, I still take the old interpretation that second half of Romans seven uh, is the description of of, Christ, of of the Christian life. It's it's my experience today. I, I want to do good, but, but sin is present with me at every step. So, so that I never do anything that's perfect in this life. There's always, sin is always present. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other. There's a struggle, there's a fight. Don't let that get you down. That's, that's, that's what the Christian life is like. It's, you're a soldier. You know, you're in a war, there are bombs flying around, there are bullets flying. And, uh, and, and you say to yourself, well, it shouldn't be like this. But it's a war. And there are enemies, and they're real, and they're out to get you. And they're out to destroy you. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So the experience of sanctification is conflict. The rule of sanctification is the law. Well, that's, that's a statement that is under fire uh, today a lot. Because you, you read that sentence and, and you say, oh, no, that's legalism. What's the rule of sanctification? It's the Ten Commandments. So half of the New Testament, half of Paul's letters are, don't do this and, and do the other. They're moral, ethical commands, outworkings, explanations of, detailed explanations of the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God is the rule of sanctification. Now, what are some current problems in sanctification? Uh, well, the first one is not so much as current today. It's certainly been current, and it's current in some circles. I don't think it's current here at First Presbyterian Church, and that's uh, perfectionism. And there are various strands and, uh, uh, of perfectionism. In uh, There was a strand of it in the 17th century. There was a strand of it certainly in the 19th century. There was a strand in the 20th century. Uh, second blessing, uh, sanctification that sort of takes you from one plane to another plane. You know, there are, there are Christians who are living on this level, and then you get this, this zap of the baptism of the Spirit, and it takes you to a different order of being and another level uh, altogether. Uh, and I, I reject that. I think that, I think that uh, yes, uh, you, can, you can grow like a weed, as they say, in sanctification. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are times in our lives, I think, that some of us have experienced real, tangible growth in grace. But we've also experienced the struggle along with it and the fight. And uh, sanctification is not to be viewed as a, a kind of linear y equals 3x plus 4 for the math folk in here. It's a straight line. Uh, but more like a quadru... Uh, uh, um, what's the term? y equals 3x squared plus 3x plus 4. It's kind of loopy line. 
right? You remember your math 101. Uh, and I, and I, think, I think that uh, sanctification is not a, uh, an ever-increasing gradient. Uh, it's more of that loopy line. And there are periods in our lives when we grow, and there are periods of, um, in our lives where the word of the prophet would be, we backslide, we slide uh, backwards. Uh, a second feature... Uh, a, a pro- that, that's problematic today in the area of sanctification is playing up the forensic or the definitive aspect to such a degree that sanctification becomes entirely passive. Right? So, so sanctification is just realizing what's true about you in Christ. R- realize that you're saved. Realize that you're justified. Uh, uh, and, and that can be put in language like uh, uh, realize, realize the gospel-centered nature of your current existence or something like that. Uh, and all of that is true. We are certainly to realize our justification and realize the gospel-centered nature of our current existence. But that does in no way um, uh, uh, play down the necessity, the absolute necessity for effort in sanctification and, and energy and, and drive and purposefulness. So it's not, sanctification is not something passive. Definitive sanctification is passive. It's a forensic idea that, 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 that we are in Christ that we sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that we are saved, that we are in a right relationship with God. But progressive sanctification is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. It's something that you and I must do. We do it by the Spirit. We do it with the help of the Spirit. But it's also a cooperative venture. It's not something the Spirit does for us. It's something that involves our effort. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you can make work out your own salvation with fear and trembling to mean realize your justification, then you're speaking a different language. I don't know what language it is, but it's not English. Work out your own salvation implies effort. Hard, strenuous effort on our part by the help and energy of the Holy Spirit, for sure. But not in, not in the way of playing up the forensic to a degree that makes sanctification entirely passive. So thirdly, and it's related to what I've just said, shrinking effort on our part. Right? Shrinking effort on our part. Now that can come in many uh, forms. Uh, you, you can read statements like... Um, if you're not satisfied, if you're not as sanctified as you ought to be, you shouldn't worry about it. You know, that also is part of God's will for you. I've certainly read statements like that recently. You know, people are, people are all bent out of shape because they're not as sanctified as they ought to be. Well, don't worry about it because God's in charge of that too. And that's, uh, that's also part of God's will for you. And, uh, and, and in a sense, that's true. God is sovereign. But, but that, that can never, you can never use your Calvinism. You can never use Calvinism to become something that sounds deterministic. You, 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 can, never, you can never employ the sovereignty of God to minimize or even negate the effort that is involved on our part. Work out your own salvation. 
We're not talking about justification. We're not talking about how a person is saved. We're not talking here about the legal and forensic aspect. We're talking about what follows as a consequence to that. Uh, Four, shrinking all motivation to a single idea of gratitude, suggesting that all others are legalistic or a return to uh, works-based salvation. Now, uh, turn over to a summary, and on pages 7 and 8 and 9, I I, I went kind of overboard, and uh, you can see this... uh, This is just a summary. If you want more on this, you can look at Kevin DeYoung's A Hole in Your Holiness. Great book, wonderful book. Kevin writes, you know, to college students, so his sense of humor and sometimes his diction can be be sort of 21 rather than 61. Uh, So so bear that in mind, but it's a a wonderful book. But look, look look at all the motives here for sanctification. I mean, just just... Let me try and pick some out at random here. Uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 12:13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Duty. Duty. As a motivation. A sense of ought, in other words. Why, why should I be holy? Because you ought to be. Because there's a, there's a, the, the motivation here is obligation. We're obliged to be holy. Or go down to God's example. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. What's the motivation for holiness? The example of God. Uh, drop down to Jesus' return. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What's the motivation for holiness? Jesus is coming. The end is coming. Uh, We could spend, you know, an hour. Uh, But I I think the list in itself is meant to help us understand that there's more than one motivation for holiness. And I, I, I I just hear too much today the mantra that there's only one real motivation for holiness, and that is thanksgiving for the grace that we have received. And and that surely, surely, surely is a motivation for holiness. But it's not the only motivation for holiness. There are 50 motivations for holiness in the New Testament. Um, Five, the the kind of moralistic, therapeutic deism, that's a phrase uh, that you'll hear Al Mohler using a lot, Uh, The kind of moralistic, therapeutic deism that confuses Christianity with decency and civil order. Uh, So here's another problem in sanctification, uh, that that it's, it's simply trying to produce a decent society. Uh, what, uh, what Al Mohler calls moralistic therapeutic deism. That isn't grounded in the gospel, in other words. It's almost the opposite of the problem that we've just been talking about. Um, there are those who see the gospel, but they're, 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 they're sort of nervous about duty and law. And there are those who see law and duty, and they're kind of nervous or completely blind to the gospel. Uh, and, and that's where we are here with moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, Celebratory, 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 celeb, how do you Americans say it? <laughs> celebratory, cel- celebratory, 
yeah, whatever. Uh, uh, failureism. Now, there's a, there's a kind of movement out there that wants to, wants to magnify the gospel. And the way you magnify the gospel is to constantly say, but I, I'm just a sinner. You know, I'm, I'm a sinner. Let me, let, me, let me celebrate the gospel a little here. Let me cuss a little. Yes, I've heard people say that. I've heard Christians say that. At least people who profess to be Christians saying that. Uh, what, 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 I, what I call here, I was a little naughty when I was writing this today. Uh, we're all sinners, so celebrate it by cussing a little or wearing an edgy tattoo that shows uh, you're forgiven. You know, you've got, a, you've got a past, but it's forgiven. And you want to kind of, you want to kind of celebrate that you've got, a, you've got a past, a sinful past. So, so, so push it a little. I think that's just antinomianism dressed in skinny jeans. <laughs> and I, I want to call it for what it is. Um, another problem here with sanctification today is the definition of legalism. Uh, I tell my students at the seminary, you may use the word legalism once a year. That's it. And be very careful of how you use it. Because you've only got one shot at it once a year. Because nine times out of ten when I hear the word legalism, what I'm hearing is, this is just not convenient for me right now. So I'm just going to call it legalism. I don't want to have to do this, so I'm just going to call it legalism. Um, legalism is a problem. Yes, it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a fundamental problem. We are hardwired. As Adamic creatures, we are hardwired toward legalism, toward self-justification, to justify ourselves. Now, what is the true definition of legalism? And it's along three lines of thought. This is how you use the word legalism. One, obedience or demand that results in justification and acceptance. You do something in order to be justified. That's legalism. Paul is combating that all the time with the Judaizers in the, in the New Testament. Two, insistence on obedience or laws that are over and above the Bible. That's legalism. To demand something that the Bible doesn't demand. That, like, uh, like the non-wearing of facial hair. Uh, when I was a student in Mississippi in 1976, uh, there was a, an, it was probably 77, uh, there was an opportunity to go and preach in a church somewhere in southern Mississippi. But on the card, you know, and, and uh, there was a card at the seminary giving the details, the address, and so on. There, there were no computers, no Google Maps. Uh, so there was a little map of how to get there and, and, and what was expected of you and the dress code and stuff and whether they were going to feed you or not or whether you had to take some sandwiches with you. Uh, depending on whether you were a Sabbatarian or not. But, but, um, but uh, one of them, I remember, had on it no beards. No beards. That's legalism. That's just plain old-fashioned legalism. Uh, or, or three, obedience from wrong motives. But see the list that I've just given you, because there are 50 of them. Now, those are the only three occasions, I think, in which you can use the word legalism. But, but nine times out of ten, I hear the word legalism, meaning this is just too much. This, 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 is, this is just not convenient for me right now. Uh, and then uh, what I call rhetorical uh, obstructionism. Um, in order to get justification by faith right, we should sin that grace may abound. 
Unless we use the phrase gospel-driven or Christ-centered in every sentence, all exhortation and command is viewed as works-based righteousness and therefore a denial of the gospel. And, and therefore you have people saying, there are, there's just no one in this entire city preaching the gospel. I had someone tell me recently, in a capital city of a state in the southern states, I'm not going to name the state or the capital, but it was a capital city of a southern state in which he said to me, you know, there just wasn't a church in the entire city preaching the gospel. So we had to start our own. And we're not talking about, you know, raving nutters. We're talking about somebody who's at the very center of, uh, of the circles in which we, we move in. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, but I... I've, I just find that, I'm labeling that rhetorical obstructionism. Um, and thirdly, one, one more little issue here, uh, the, the, the use of the phrase justified by faith, sanctified by faith. You know, we're justified by faith and we're sanctified by faith. But if you think those two phrases mean exactly the same thing, then you're using a category mistake in logic. Because when we say we are justified by faith, what are we saying? We're saying we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. If you say we're sanctified by faith, we're not saying we're sanctified by faith apart from the works of the law. Because the faith that justifies is never alone. It is always accompanied by works. So that the very basis of sanctification, the essence of sanctification is good works. Right? So, so you can't use the phrase justified by faith and sanctified by faith side by side as, as, it, as it were because they're, two, they're in two different categories. Yes, we engage in everything that we do by faith. But it's not, it's not by faith alone apart from the works of the law. Well, as I said, there was a lot there and there's more and... Um, do, uh, in, your, in your spare time, look at the summary of J.C. Ryle's holiness on pages 11 and 12. But we're going to go to prayer, so let me, uh, let me pray, pause, uh, and we'll segue uh, in a few minutes to a time of prayer. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We're overwhelmed by... What lies before us, we find ourselves uh, in the midst of a war zone, a battle, a battle within and without, within with, with a, a, a struggle to, to do the good that we would, that we do not, and to refrain from what we would not and find that we still do it, uh, and we find a battle without of a, an enemy of souls who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And uh, we long, we do long to be more like the Lord Jesus and we pray for your blessing and help that we might run with perseverance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith and all of it based on what we are in the Lord Jesus and what you have done for us. But now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. So hear us, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.